I want to do a shout out to one of our amazing partners, Banzoogle. Now, Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a stunning website for artists. Now, I have personally have used web builders for years. In fact, the 8020 Records website is maintained by yours truly. But honestly, these days, as someone who represents artists, I just want something straightforward that still looks amazing and works with everything that we use, such as Bandcamp, SoundCloud, Bands of Town, Printful, and so forth. And Banzoogle checks off all of these. Also, for those of you who have no idea how to build websites, don't worry, they make it super easy there too. You do not need to know a single line of code. In fact, after you sign up, they go step-by-step step through each part of the process to get you up and running. Plus, their pricing is practically the same as if you paid for a web host. So really, it's a no-brainer. Lastly, and most importantly, what I love about Banzoogle is the people. Every single person I've spoken to has been nothing but kind and extremely responsive and helpful. They truly care about the artists that use their platform. And honestly, don't just take my word for it. Go listen to my interview with Stacy Bedford, the CEO of the company. Banzoogle is also offering to all our listeners 15% off the first year of any subscription. Just enter the promo code 8020show or 8020show, like the numbers, on banzoogle.com. I'll also put it in the description. Built by musicians for musicians. Banzoogle. You're listening to The 8020 Show, an inside look into the music industry. Hello and welcome everybody to The 8020 Show. I am your wonderful host, Mike Zimmerlich, and my next guest is Kevin Bruner, Senior Vice President of Engagement and Education at CD Baby. In this interview, we dive into what led to his current role after 16 years in the company. We also discuss the creation of the CD Baby DIY Musician Podcast. Kevin is also a longtime musician, and we discuss how he got involved in Small Town Poets, which led to a single that charted on radio and then got signed to EMI. It was truly special getting to see Kevin's perspective on both sides of distribution from both being an artist as well as the distributor, and he had a great deal of insight to share. It is my absolute honor and pleasure to give you Kevin Bruner. Hey, Kevin, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me. Oh, are you kidding? Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to be here. So I do want to mention something because I want to talk about making mistakes and how to recover them from them. And this is my mistake I want to talk about because I reached out to you on the NAM app like three years ago. And because I saw you speaking at NAM, and I thought, oh, you would be, a, I would love to have you a guest on the 8020 Show podcast. So Fortunately, through conventions like the NAM show, you have the ability of connecting with other professionals in the music industry. So I thought, oh, this is fantastic. So I, I messaged you through the app and forgot about it. And I think it was a, like a, maybe a week or so after the NAM show ended and didn't th realize it until this year I was in the app again. I noticed you responded saying I would love to be on the show. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Did I lose? I'm like, I felt so terrible because I'm like, I, I missed this message and I feel, you know, I felt so unprofessional for not responding. And I thought, okay, you know what? 
it was an honest mistake. Let me just respond back and try again. And so I did. And you, you were so nice and responding back, not only way quicker than I got back to you, but you still were willing to be on the show. So first of all, I want to say thank you so much. And I do apologize about that because I've, and I want to use that as an example that if you just own up to your mistakes, most people are usually pretty cool about it. Like yourself. Oh, no worries. It wasn't that big of a deal. Whenever I see, get messages in those apps that, you know, conference apps, I always assume that they may or may not see it again. So I, I my my feelings weren't hurt. I appreciate that. So let's talk about how you got started, because you have such a not only a long, long history of CD Baby, but uh, you are a musician yourself, correct? Yep. So can you talk about how you got into music? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I've I took piano lessons like forever when I was a kid. Can't really play piano anymore. I could go for a while, pretty good. Um, but then uh, I kind of took a break from music. And but then in high school, picked up the guitar and really got engaged with music again. And decided I wanted to go to college for music and music business. And so I went to Belmont University in Nashville. And that was uh, some of the toughest stuff I've ever done in my life. Um, very challenging. Uh, and while I was there, I just immersed myself in the music business and any opportunity that there was. Um, you know, it's funny because I was just talking to somebody the other day, and I, I think I went to one party my entire college career because. I didn't have time for that. I was there to, I wanted to be in the music business. I wanted to play guitar and, and it's very intense, you know, all the practice that's required and not to, even to mention your regular studies that you're supposed to do. And then just going after every opportunity to, whether it be internships, volunteer at events and shows or do whatever I could just to be in it and experience the, the music business and just, you know, make the connections there. While I was there, I met my, one of my roommates had friends from the Atlanta area that were looking for a new guitar player. Um, and I ended up joining that band after my fourth year in college. And uh, by the end of that summer, we were signed to a label, Nehemiah label. And, you know, that kind of launched my career as far as being in music is concerned. So was that the first band that you were ever in were you, or were you were in bands in high school as well? That was the first band I was ever in. So wow. right off the bat, you got, you, you were in a band first band and then gets So can you talk a little bit more? Cause that, that usually doesn't happen. like that usually doesn't happen that often. So can you talk about uh, how that came about? Not only just joining the band, but then the discussions about signing to EMI. Yeah. So, uh, there were some groups that I had to play in in college, so I had played with other people, but this was the first band where it's like, we're a band, we write music, we go play shows. Um, yeah, I, I had never really, I'd never played any shows in a club or anything like that before I started playing with them. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, the experience, it's, it's a little different now. I mean, this was in the, the mid to late 90s, uh, but the experience back then, you know, I walked into my first rehearsal with them and they were sending out three song demo tapes to um, to all the labels. I mean, that's at that time, you know, it was such a high bar of entry just to go to a studio and record even demo quality 
tracks, you know, stuff that today people can do in their, just about everybody can do in their house in 20 minutes, you know, you had that money. So like the idea of getting a demo tape, even if it was unsolicited, chances are the artist was a certain level because they had invested a whole lot already, or they were just rich and had money to burn. Those were the two options. So they were sending these out. Um, and then uh, over that course of that summer, uh, when I started playing with them, we had A&R people coming out to see us. People were following up with the tape. We had a manager at the time who was working, you know, those connections some. And uh, the funny thing is, is uh, one of the A&R people, the, label, the one we ended up signing with, uh, they, they came out to see us at a festival, which festivals are terrible gigs to have someone come out and see what you sound like. Yeah, not the great scenario. It, <laughs> the, the this particular scenario. scenario was terrible because the festival, you know, it was one of those big outdoor festivals. They actually had to move locations the week of the festival. And we're talking about a massive scale festival. And we were just playing on the side stage, you know, not the main stage, um, because they had had torrential downpours that had just flooded the normal site. And this site that it ended up being at was still super, super muddy, like thick mud where you, you lose your shoes in it. And that's what the stage was sitting on. And so like the stage was all muddy and it's kind of sinking into the mud and it was just terrible conditions and um, it was hot and gross and we didn't play very good. Uh, and, but anyway, the A&R guy loved us <laughs> and we were, uh, you know, but we, you know, it came down to deciding between two different labels. Um, and the interesting thing was, is the label that we went with actually offered us less money, but we went with them because we thought that they would, were more in line with our artistic vision and who they thought that we should um, work with. They, they were based out of Memphis and um, we recorded at a studio there called Ardent Studios. The producer that, you know, they said that they would have us have produce our record was the same producer that produced the Jim Blossoms. And, um, and it just felt like a right, the right fit. Um, we could have gone with this other label. Who knows what it would have sounded like. Uh, we would have had more money, but um, we really were concerned about making sure that we sounded like us because it's in Nashville, especially at that time, a lot of the artists, all their albums sounded the same. Didn't sound like any, uh, a lot of, and that still happens in Nashville a lot. Uh, so uh, we wanted to make sure that it sounded unique and that it's someone that would help us define our sound and pull that out of us and not um, go into a situation where we just end up sounding like any other product out there. Well, money is definitely not everything. I mean, especially when you are, even though I, even though it's technically not a partnership, it really is a partnership when you are working with a record label or even for management for that matter. So it's not even just about the money. Like you said, it's about, do they have, are they on the same page as far as your artistic vision? Do you feel like that they're going to take care of you or are they just, you know, essentially loaning out? Cause it really is a loan. Are they just loaning you out the money and then you're on your own to figure things out and they're just expecting you to deliver results. Right? So is there chemistry between the band and the representation because again they're representing your music so is there some sort of camaraderie there in some form or fashion so 
sometimes it's, it's, it goes far greater than the money that's involved is that is, do you believe that they're going to have your best interests when it comes to representing your work? Yeah. And even, even, you know, I think the challenges with a label or any professional working relationship is those feelings, uh, can change. <laughs> so, you know, uh, and, and it changes quickly when you start selling well. So our first record we made, they, the, the A&R guy, what, what originally got us signed was, you know, I mentioned that three song demo tape. There was, uh, one song on there that the the nr guy absolutely loved and thought was a number one hit and i think there was one other one on there that he thought was incredibly strong um he didn't he didn't think radio would play it i remind me to tell you that story in a, in a bit but uh so it was really on the strength of the songs and i think ultimately especially in that era when you can't produce music yourself the songs have to be good. And I think that to some degree is an advantage that artists had in the past or, or maybe paid more attention to, because if you don't have a good song. You don't have, you don't have anything and you, you're not going to have the money to, to create the artistic vision that you want. You know, our first album, I think they spent, it wasn't even that much considered that much. I think they spent like $65,000 on it. Um, and then our second album, I think they spent close to a hundred thousand dollars. Um, you know, and at that that time, those aren't big recording budgets. They're 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 nice, but you're not you know screwing around wasting time, right? Because it was that expensive to do a, a nice record. Um, now I think a lot of artists can hide behind all the production that they can do at home, and we and we you know at CD Baby we hear all sorts of amazing albums that are made at home, but I think it's easy to not focus on the quality of your songs in that scenario because you can dive right into production instead of starting with hey do i even have a song that's worth producing um uh but you know music takes shapes in all sorts of ways and uh anyway so they, they really liked our songs and that's what really got us uh in the door even though the first show they saw us play was terrible i like the fact that you mentioned i do want you asked me to remind you so i'm reminding you actually right now about the story about uh, the your A and R thought that one song in particular was not radio worthy. So you keep because I want to talk about this a little bit too. Because being on the representation side, I can honestly vouch that none of us actually know what's truly going to hit. We make assumptions at best based upon what we know before, but ultimately at the end of the day, we're we're all just guessing. It's just a gut feeling at the end of the day of what we feel is going to be a single worthy or not. Well, that, and I think that's the biggest complaint I have about the the label world is that oftentimes, even today, where the label deals are better for artists than they were when we were signed to a major label, is that oftentimes decisions are being made by one person or a group of people that are all just based on their limited view of whatever their life's experience has been, as opposed to just putting the music out there and letting the fans and the people decide. And uh, that was one of the big things my big takeaway from being on a label is that you're often held hostage by these decisions that are are trying to be very predictive like playing the lottery as opposed to being more um engaged with the fan community and letting them decide and and be involved in the process and uh but yeah so this song it's a couple important things one 
we were in the Christian market, so that's an important factor to understand. The song was is called Everything I Hate, and the chorus says those words, and uh, it's a very catchy song, but our A&R guy said, radio will never play it because it has, it sounds negative. So the other thing that was out there at the time is that three-song demo tape that I mentioned, that song Everything I Hate was on it. It there was a, an indie label in Atlanta at the time that would do these compilations. And they had built a bit of a reputation because they had um, helped discover the, the, this one band called Third Day at the time was just like breaking the charts wide open and just selling tons of, of, of records out of the blue. So they put together a sampler, you know, like I said, of all those independent artists and our demo version of that song was on it and it was a deep cut too there was like 20 tracks and i think it was like 15 or something and ran so that happened in the the winter of uh 97 and we had recorded our album in the fall and it was coming out in the spring and that demo version randomly started getting played by radio stations so much so that the label got a call saying hey this this song by small town poets is about to start charting and they're like what why are they even playing this this isn't the because it wasn't the official album version it was the demo version there was a much better version that had been recorded slightly different song arrangement and obviously full production because that was clearly demo production but the radio stations were playing it and it actually did start charting the demo version so they scrambled to and totally changed up the plan uh, for the singles and got the the correct album version out there to radio stations as quickly as possible. And uh, the song got more than enough exposure to go number one. But by the time they got that real version out, some of the stations had had it in heavy rotation for weeks. And they, you know, because going number one is just about as is really more about timing than it is exposure. And so some of these stations were like, we just can't keep it in heavy rotation any longer. It's been like four weeks. And so uh, it went up to like number five or something. But like I said, it had more than enough it, like combined exposure. If it all happened at the same time, it would have easily gone number one um, in our genre. And, and so it was just right out of the gate, the lesson learned of like, these people can be wrong. And not only that, when you have assumptions that something is always true, it like, oh, the, only this type of song will play on radio. The What gets played on radio starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller of a box. And then finally someone does something outside of the box and it goes huge because it doesn't sound like everything else. So I think that was sort of what was going on there, that it just had a raw, different sound. And so, yeah, right out of the gate, we proved that the record company people a lot of times don't know what they're talking about. We don't. And and the other thing, too, is I want to mention is you brought up another good point. is that the demo version was the one that people latched on to and really enjoyed, not the full production. And that's also important, too, is that it's not just about the production, but it's also the quality of the song itself, the quality of the arrangement, how it was performed. Yeah. Most people want to rather have a really, really good performance, even if it's just if it's super, super raw, if the emotion is there, but it was recorded in like in, you know, in your bathroom, for example, just because the acoustic sounds decent in there for demo purposes, 
they rather listen to that than something that's fully produced that has no soul. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. And that's why, and that's why it's so hard to sometimes have a fully produced song, but also still have the essence of what makes that song good still in it. And that's what makes an amazing single or, or a song in general is when you're able to combine the two as having really, really good top quality production with a really good song with a really good performance. And that's really hard to do. And that's, that's really, really is really a challenge. And sometimes, you know, Right off the gate, you get it. You just nailed it. And then trying to re- to replicate it then in the studio is it becomes a lot harder. Oh yeah, the the one thing with that story that I never I would never be able to get the answers to is that, you know, that company sent those dem- those compilation discs to radio station, but I know that company did not hire a radio promoter to push any of those songs. So I have we have no idea why they picked up that track radio station started playing it i don't know if it's because you know at that time everyone it was you know there was a press release when we got signed but it's not like anyone knew who we were so it's not like everyone's you know waiting around for our single to drop so i don't know why station started playing it um it was really weird yeah and uh or clearly something caught people's ear i was just surprised because it was like track 15 out of 20 and you know it was indie music in the nineties. It was not as, it's not the same as indie music now. <laughs> it isn't, but like the same, but the same thing applies to today too. I, I know that we released an album with an, uh, with an artist about 12 years ago now, 12, 13 years ago. And there was a single on there that really hit well with audiences. And unfortunately the band broke up just when we were getting started, but there was a fan of theirs that, put the song to a, essentially like a, almost like a, um, a montage, if you will, of an, a specific anime show and post it up onto YouTube. And that YouTube video went viral and now has, I think, close to 800,000 views. And, you know, and like, and all of a sudden, not only was it that's that video that went viral for the video's sake, but it was because of the song, because we all of a sudden saw that all these other people started doing these lyric videos for the same song that, and that also got thousands of views to it. And, you know, we didn't like, we didn't do it. I mean, the band was broke up. Like we didn't have anything to do with that. Like it was, it was just there. We're like, awesome, cool. And we just kept on like promoting it saying, this is awesome. Cause it's like, it was a cool thing to do, but we had no idea like who the person was, like the band didn't even know who the person was. It was just a fan that did it and it just kind of caught on. And you just don't know what songs are going to hit with people, what versions of the songs, how it's going to come about. You try your best to figure those things out, but you know, it's, it's, is the way I always look at it is that put what you can out there and hope for the best. And when you hit something good, just be prepared for it as much as you possibly can. Yeah. It's really what it comes down to. Yeah. You never know. You never know what's going to hit and what's going to do well. And I mean, I have plenty of stories of the label uh, saying this is going to be a hit and them being totally wrong uh, as well. But then there were some that they were correct. You know, there was the one, you know, the one that I said that he, he really liked that basically got assigned that one was a hit it's you know 20 some years later now it's still our number one performing song on all the the plat the digital platforms um so uh yeah it is it is one of those things where there's 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 mystery to it which is you know it keeps keeps it fun right and that also is why it's so important when again going back to what you talked about before about finding the right uh, partner, right label is to have somebody that is on the same page. Because again, 
they're going to make predictions all day long. But if that is not in agreement with the artist, the artist is not going to necessarily be as enthusiastic about promoting it if you're making decisions that they don't agree with. And that's why I always, I always, when it comes to especially releases specifically, I always will put in my two cents of what I think might do well and the reasons why. But if the band disagrees and thinks that this song is the one to go for, or this is the way to approach it, especially if it's a creative decision like that, I'll go, you know, I'll probably go with the artist because I'd rather have them have their full, full 100% support in what we're trying to do. And even if I'm right, it still doesn't make a difference. I'm still losing because I don't have them 100% on board with the plan. Yeah. So, you know, and you just hope, you know, you just go for it. And if, if the artist is wrong, then the artist is wrong, you know, but you still are releasing everything anyway. So it might end up that the song that I thought was a single ends up being the right one. And it's like, cool. Okay. Well, now we'll push it. We'll push this one now because this was the actual, actually the single. But honestly, after all these years, I would say 99% of the time, usually we're on the same page. Like usually we're like, yeah, that's, that's, that's the one, that's the one that that's really going to make, make things stand out. Yeah. So you got signed onto a label and, and doing all these amazing things as a musician, but then you shifted gears to a completely different role and and in this case specifically joining cd baby so can you talk about how the, I, that's probably going to be quite a bit of story but can you talk about tra- not only transitioning uh getting involved with cd baby but also transitioning to being a musician to being essentially on the opposite side yeah i mean uh i've always been a musician and been active playing i mean that never died but when when I was touring full time and making records with small town poets. I mean, it's a grueling lifestyle and uh, not a lot of financial reward, but it's a grueling lifestyle. And uh, after a while, you know, one by one, we all just started, you know, taking the band kind of eventually went on hiatus and we all just kind of went our separate ways for a bit. For me, I think the big thing was, you know, like I said at the top of the show, I finished my fourth year in college and got a phone, literally left that semester um, after the last day of school, went to Disney World with my friend from college. And while I was there, uh, you know, we're there celebrating the end of school year. While I was there, I got a phone call asking me to play with Small Town Poets and went back, joined the band and away we went. It was kind of like this unplanned thing that just took over my life all of a sudden, which was fine and great. But it, it was just so grueling, uh, the schedule we had, not even just the amount of shows, but you know, our manager had us going from morning till night. We'd be a drive time radio show in the morning somewhere, another city for lunch, you know, as we're going on our way to the next gig in the place where the gig was, we'd be doing in stores, we'd be doing all sorts of stuff. Showing up to college um, student centers to play acoustic sets. We really became known for these acoustic sets we'd do all over all over the city to promote our shows and it was just grueling and i didn't need a break and i'm from the west coast and uh you know the 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 internet and the gig economy and things like that didn't exist at this point in time so i had no connection to the city i was living in atlanta you know i met him when i was in uh nashville but the band was based out of atlanta so I literally knew no one in this giant city I'm living in because I'm never there. And I'm like, I got to get back to the West Coast where I'm from. 
Um, I'm from San Diego, but ended up in the Portland area. And I thought, maybe I'm done with music. I was doing a lot of photography, so I was pursuing that somewhat uh, professionally. And I'm like, this I can control. It just takes me and I can control all the variables. <laughs> um, and I can still be creative. But then I just had this a massive outpouring of songwriting that I've never had before. And, and that's when music production tools were starting to become more available uh, on home computers and the computers being able to handle all that processing power. And I just started writing and recording like crazy, just tons and tons of music. I'm not a lyric writer, but I had tons of music and melodies and all that kind of stuff. And so I put together a band in the Northwest just to see what could happen with that. And that project, uh, while I was doing that project, recording and releasing it is when I came across CD Baby. And so I came across CD Baby because I was wanting to get music out there. But first I came across it because at the time it was the only place where I could find a lot of like resources, like here's all the places that we recommend you go get CDs made, or here's all the things about promoting your music online and all that kind of stuff. So it was just, it was a good resource. And, um, and you know, the only option to distribute your music. And so I started using it and then, you know, it was based in Portland. I didn't know that when I found them online, but realized, oh, they're based in Portland. And so I eventually got a job there. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that I've been working there since 2006. A lot has changed in the industry since then. Um, and, you know, I mean, the cool thing is, is I've, I've released more in, a ton more music independently than I ever did on a label um, with multiple artists and small town poets. We our hiatus ended a while ago. We've been releasing uh, lots of albums independently and still playing shows and and all that. So yeah, as at my time at CD Baby, I found it because I was looking for a distributor and have been in the trenches as an artist the whole way. So I think a lot of it with CD Baby uh, and my career there is that um, I really identify with the client because I am one of the clients and I know what it's like to be an artist. And I think a lot of people that work with artists, they may have some ideas, but what it's like to work, be an artist, but they don't quite understand, you know, uh, the, the emotional ups and downs of being a, uh, someone who's writing, recording, and releasing music out into the world, and and just the toll that takes on people, and and just you know, um, and all that. So that's really I've just been there for a long time, and just was you know I had that music business background already, and I saw a big opportunity at CD Baby when I started working there. I thought, you know, this place could be huge, and there's a lot a lot of room for growth. This whole independent market thing is brand new. And it's going to continue to grow and continue to be a major uh, force in the music business. So, um, yeah, I've just as my career has grown, as CD Baby has grown over the years. So let's talk about that, because what was the role that you started with with CD Baby? Because I want to like to give some context. I was answering the phone and responding to emails. It was all artists, mostly artists that because the idea of distribution was brand new to people. This was 2006. The internet had been around since the late 90s, but still, even in 2006, there was a lot of people that uh, didn't have computers at home. Um, and, you know, maybe they had to go to the library to do some of this stuff or um, 
or their computer still was not really well, uh, you know, for the modern internet, it, like if you had a computer that was five years old in 20, 2006, you weren't going to be able to do certain things at all. <laughs> yeah. Managing <laughs> files and uploads oh, yeah. and all this kind of stuff. So we'd, we'd be talking about, um, you know, things, anything from artists freaking out, realizing that we could get the music on iTunes. Cause we were the first distributor, independent distributor to get artist music on iTunes in 2004. So they, uh, I remember getting that email from CD baby before I worked there. Hey, we can now get your music on iTunes. Um, but so the, these ideas were still relatively new. Now everybody just instinctively knows you can go to the internet and pretty much accomplish most tasks that you want to do. Um, but Back then, even though we'd been doing independent distribution for a long time, since 98 for CDs and, um, you know, two years at that time for digital, people were still very much stuck in the old school way of thinking that I need a label to get my music out there. I've got, um, that's my only option in order to have a career and, and, and build fans and make money. And so at that time, I'd spend my time talking to artists on the phone all day. And, it, you know, like I said, anything from, oh, I can get my music on iTunes. What do I need to do? Or, you know, helping someone figure out how to manage an MP3 file or something. Who knows? But I would get an artist saying, oh, I need to get on a label. Can you tell me how to get signed to a label? And I'd be like, look, I've been on a label. Let me tell you, you don't need to worry about getting on a label. Your problem is you don't have any fans yet. <laughs> Here's all the things you need <laughs> to do. Then like the next phone call might would I remember uh, a situation where someone's like, hey, I don't tour anymore because I've there's this new platform called YouTube and I'm making so many fans and getting people uh, so many people following me just because of the videos I'm making and it's driving music sales. And I'd be like, OK, um, you need to tell me everything about this because I need to know all the details. And so it was actually out of that. That job. Um, that the DIY Musician podcast was birthed because I was a huge podcast junkie. I still listen to tons of podcasts, but you know, at that time, podcasts, it was almost like this weird, like secret way of getting the real information. <laughs> and I was just addicted to it. Um, you know, hearing conversations from various industries and whether it be music, I mean, there was some home recording podcasts I was listening to at the time, but just a lot of really great content that you could find um, through podcast conversations. So I thought this would be the perfect thing for a podcast because I wish everyone could hear these conversations. The one I'm having with this artist about why they don't need to be focused on a label at this point, that's way far down the road compared to where they're at. Or this conversation with this person who's making videos online and building an audience and doesn't even need to leave their house. Um, and so that became the DIY Musician Podcast. So we actually went to, uh, and I didn't want to be on it by myself. Um, so I wanted, because uh, I, I I looked at it as, okay, my role on the podcast is more, I'm the host and more of the, even though I'm an artist, uh, I tend to play more of the industry cred person. Like when we were starting out, this is how I had it in my head. So I enlisted Chris, Robley, who's been on the podcast since the beginning, as he's kind of like the 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 local indie guy, like he was playing a ton in the Portland scene. And I didn't really have much. I was more the major industry guy. I had been on a label, but I hadn't really played much in a local scene and clubs at all. Um, 
and Chris had that experience and was doing a lot of cool stuff in Portland. And then we had another another Chris uh, who was really at that time wanted to be uh, start a podcast like This American Life. So he's really into the production. He loved podcasts as well. He loved storytelling. And so I we went to a pizza place here in Portland and uh, we got there and realized we had nothing to write on. And so we literally wrote the idea for the first 10 episodes on a napkin because I said, we got to have, we can't pod fade, which was a term that was popular back then when people would start a podcast and two episodes later, you never hear from them again. And so I wanted to make sure that before we even started producing the first episode, we had a run of shows that we knew would give us some momentum and help us craft the ideas and, and the format of the show. And so we, we took those 10 episodes and we made them all. And, and uh, that's, that was how the podcast got started. And now your episode, I know it's over 300. It's what episode are you at right now? I'm about to post episode 314 today. 314. That is an amazing accomplishment. Congratulations on that front. Cause that is not easy. Let me tell no, you, it is not, it is not easy. And you know, some people might think, well, there's other podcasts that are in the thousands. I'm like, the difference is a lot of the podcasts that that have a ton of episodes like that, they're commenting on TV shows or, or you know, all they have to do is show up and comment about something that somebody else did. That's easy. the The hard part is when you're making a show with the content's 100% original and you're trying to keep it fresh and new, and it's based on you know, what things that are happening in the world. And as the industry changes, there would be times where it felt like there wasn't much to talk about. Like we felt like we were in a dry spell, not a, nothing new as far as marketing strategies or platforms. It's been a bit since we've had anything exciting to other times where it feels like something new is popping up every day. So keeping it going is, it's been a labor of love. And, uh, you know, if, if the fans of the podcast didn't constantly make uh, themselves known, we probably would have, we probably would have given up a while ago just because it's hard. It's hard. It is. And like you said, it, it's so hard to keep, uh, content fresh. And I know for myself when doing the 8020 show podcast is that we also had at least 20 episodes worth of material before we release anything, because we want to make sure that we had a good runway. Cause like you said, we don't want to essentially pod fade if you will. And, but also on top of that too, I know myself is that just in general, if you're not committed to a project in that way, it's very easy to say, yeah, you know, I'm not interested anymore and just give it up. And I didn't want to, I really wanted to give it a shot, but it's, you know, it's, 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 it can be very challenging. And sometimes I'll have backup episodes and, uh, for, uh, our regular listeners, you know, that we had, uh, an, a, I had a repost recently from another podcast that I was on. Usually if you see those reposts or some, I actually think I mentioned I was taking a little bit of a break. It's because I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to catch back up again on getting some additional content, but I still wanted to make sure there were still momentum and still things that were coming out on a weekly basis. So that that is you know it's hard to you know even to doing the interviews it's it's scheduling the interview it's the homework behind it and doing all that research and the time it takes to to put the whole thing together it does it does take time to do all those different things but um i do want to ask you this question though when you first started because this is the first time you were doing a podcast right was this one so how nervous were you when you were the first oh we were so <laughs> nervous because the other thing is the technology has come a long way of recording these. Like we're recording this podcast over Zoom. It'll sound great. Uh, these options were not available to us. So we actually had to have a, a, 
a digital recording device and usually do them in person. We finally at one point bought a phone tap so we could tap, like uh, get a feed off the phone into our recorder. And it sounded like garbage, but that's the best you could do. But the very first interview we did was um, with Dan Zanes. Uh, he was huge on CD Baby at the time. He does um, kids music. You know, there was this wave of, around the time I started at CD Baby, there was this wave of, of kids music that adults actually liked listening to. Um, and Dan was one of those artists and was selling an enormous amount of CDs to CD Baby. So I wanted to interview him. He was playing in Portland. We got to the show. We saw the show. Um, the funny thing was, <laughs> I had in my mind, oh, they'll probably be like seven o'clock at night. Okay, then we'll do the interview at nine. It's like, no, the show's at 11. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's a kid show. It's 11 a.m. <laughs> um, and so we went, saw the show, and myself and uh, the, uh, the other Chris, he went by the Bolt for a while on the show. He's uh, no longer with CD Baby. But um, he and I were sitting there setting up the recording gear. Like we're both our hands are visibly shaking. We're so nervous because we're like, this could, this could go well, or it could just totally tank our whole plan of having a podcast. But it went really well. We were very prepared. Um, you know, one of the things that I uh, with the podcast was always like, I want to make sure that the real like getting into the weeds of the questions about how artists are doing things that are driving success and understand what, you know, their methods and their, you know, how they're building fans, how they're building their business and all that kind of stuff. So we had a lot of great questions ready to go and, and the recording equipment worked. So we made episode one. We actually didn't air that one uh, as episode one, but um, that was the first one we recorded and we were so nervous. And you know, the, the digital recorders, there'd be times where we'd have a, an interview with an artist or a guest and the technology would fail and it'd be lost. So uh, that hasn't happened in a while, thankfully, because in those early days, just the technology holding together was somewhat nerve wracking. I think that I've only had that happen to me once. And fortunately, it was with my cousin <laughs> who uh, he is a podcaster. So it was not that big of a deal. And fortunately, we figure out what what happened and we were able to recover it. But I'm very happy that I started the 8020 show podcast now than back then, because the technology is there where literally we just do is we just record over zoom. And I use, I, I even use GarageBand, like nothing fancy, just use GarageBand to record my internal end. And, you know, I, and I have, you know, and that's it. And you can get, you know, you can get good equipment these days for, you know, very affordable pricing and to sound great. So for me, it was like the perfect timing to, to get into podcasting for that reason. But yeah, you know, there's sometimes always going to be technical difficulties here and there and so forth. It just kind of comes with the territory. Yeah. 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 It's come a long way. So I will also want to say too, that, you know, it, it does take a while to get used to it, but uh, I was listening to a number of episodes um, before you came on to the show. And I want to say how charismatic you are, because that also is a very, very hard thing to do. And you definitely have a, I just want to say you have a, you are great as a podcast host, because you definitely have that charisma, <laughs> especially when interviewing guests. It's not an easy thing to do. No, it's not. It's, it's challenging. 
You're doing a fine job, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I was not fishing for a compliment. I was not fishing, but I, I really do appreciate that. It is it's tough, too, because I, I don't know about you, but I myself am, am an introvert naturally. So for me, I never thought in a million years I would do a podcast episode because, first of all, I you know, we all don't don't can't stand the vo uh, our own voices. But on top of that, too, I just naturally an introvert. I'm not that kind of person. I'm not that outgoing personality. So for myself to record my voice to then broadcast out there, you know, that that's crazy to me. So I are, do you consider yourself an introvert or, or an extrovert? Uh, I don't know. I, I think I'm one of those people that um, I'm probably more introverted, but there's times where I really, really, really want to be like, uh, you know, at a party or a part of the crowd and having fun. But a lot of times where I'm like, okay, I need to just be, have downtime by myself and, and re-energize. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, the one thing with being on a podcast, cause uh, you know, it is hard. It's, it's similar to in my opinion, like being an artist, making a record, I would listen to what we did and, you know, critique myself and, figure out, okay, here's how we make it better. Um, you know, especially in the, the early days, um, you know, we would be, uh, recording and, you know, it sounded like, oh, there's kind of low energy or, um, you know, maybe we shouldn't record these first thing in the morning because we sound, we sound, uh, pretty low, uh, and energy and mellow and it wasn't the best, you know, uh, maybe we need a few energy drinks before. <laughs> I don't know. And then also just trying to figure out the different scenarios where we could capture what I felt like was the magic of the podcast. Um, uh, Chris now lives, who Chris Robley's on the podcast with me on a regular basis, and the format has evolved as well over the years. That that was another thing I felt like the format needed to evolve in order to to maintain consistency and also keep it fresh. So the. Chris was in Portland and so we'd record it in the office with you know like a field recorder and real mics just right there or recording it in a computer but now he lives in uh, Portland Maine and he's been there for a while and so fortunately the technology started coming around to record you know uh, voices simultaneously in different locations on the internet and that helped us out a lot and that also kind of drove some of the format changes over the years but yeah I was I was always just assessing it and 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 listening and because I was doing all the editing as well. So I mean, it was my baby for many, many years. Now we have somebody else edit it, but um, I would listen and go, ah, next time I'll prove here. This needs to be, you know, have a little more energy and all that. I'm tr I try to be good about critiquing myself. I actually I intentionally don't like to listen to the episodes afterwards because I think I'll be overcritical. But I, especially for, <laughs> but for intro, like I think what I try to do is the intros. When something I have is that's a little bit more scripted, then I try to listen intently to making sure that okay I can sound this a little bit better. Or this is too low energy. Maybe I can emphasize this a little bit more. So I try to do those things. But in the actual episode itself, because if I think about it too much, and I have to be careful because I'm doing this interview right now, but if I think about it too much, I don't want it to come across sounding inauthentic. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I want it to come across as organically as possible. And sometimes the awkward pauses and things like that are, that happen in a natural conversation 
that's what makes people feel comfortable is because of that reason. So I don't want to exclude other things out. So if I overanalyze it and going, oh, I said too many ums and ahs, or you know, <laughs> I, I, I had an awkward pause, or why did I say that word in that particular way? Why was I thinking, right? I try not to think about those things too much because then I'm not concentrating on the conversation I'm having with the guest. Yeah, when Chris and I... Uh... We got to a point where we now we you know we have time where we create the the topic we create the show notes and then um you know we so we have extensive notes before we record a podcast however uh i learned that especially um with him he was far more animated and passionate when he was speaking off the cuff and oftentimes i'd say oh that was amazing you got to make that same point when we actually are recording. <laughs> and when we actually recorded, it would not be as good. Uh, it would still be fine because uh, he's great uh, on on the podcast as well. And But it was just it's one of those things where I'm like, OK, there's certain things I'll when we're talking through the notes, I'll cut cut it off. Like, nope, no, nope, we got to stop talking because we're always better when it's when we're just going for it but then when we feel like we're trying to hit points that we said already the the emotion and the passion the energy is not there so that's that's something i do with when we're doing the notes if we start if it starts feeling like we're recording a podcast without the record button going i'll be like nope stop let's move on you know save that and uh save it for the show because otherwise the magic won't be there it's true and sometimes i'll find that i'll have conversations with my guests before we record that is so good and it's like oh no <laughs> we, we're not recording this right now i wish we did and you know i tried to like somewhat bring it up if i thought it was a really good topic but again it's it's completely different when it comes to recording themselves and sometimes that that does happen but i also like to try to capture that as much as humanly possible into the ap uh, episode itself like right even right now i mean we're essentially kind of going off the cuff a little bit on, you know, because <laughs> that's the thing. I, I'll have like a list of questions uh, to as a, essentially a guide, but then allowing the conversation to tangent and to talk about other things. It's kind of funny. We're, this is a very self-referential episode. We're <laughs> <laughs> so I do actually want to uh, segue for a second um, back into your career with CD Baby, because I do want to emphasize the fact that you've been there now for over 16 years and you've gone from answering the phones for, for questions to going to director of marketing and now to the point of SVP of engagement and education, which congratulations, because that's truly amazing. And I feel that especially these days, that doesn't happen as often to not only go up the chain within the same company for that long, but also to be within the company for a long period of time. So can you talk a little bit more about that of, first of all, your decision that you wanted to stay with CD Baby for so long, but also um, to that point of essentially longevity in the company and, and how has that, how has that helped you? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think tying this into the podcast, um, uh, we, because I had started that, like at that time at CD Baby, it was, it was quite a scene. I could tell you stories about what life was like inside the office and you wouldn't believe me. You'd say, oh, you're just exaggerating, making it up. There's no need for exaggeration or anything. I mean, uh, uh, truth was stranger than fiction, for sure. It was just a crazy environment. It was fun, but it needed to grow up. Um, we were all just a bunch of crazy artists 
and you know just passionate about music and and loved helping other artists so uh that was really a part of our dna but for me i saw there wasn't a marketing department or anything like that at that point and the podcast became really the only marketing thing cd baby was doing um and very quickly i started getting asked to speak at conferences like beyond panels and things like that and the podcast was getting recognized um you know podcasting was brand new like as a uh still hitting its first phase of growth for the medium um it's gone through like i think we're on like the fourth or fifth phase at this point uh but anyway so that really started to get me some exposure in the company and outside the company and then we got bought in 2008 and i thought i'm history <laughs> but the, i think the podcast uh, was one of the main things that saved me uh and they started a marketing department um because when they got when they bought us i had started doing sync licensing for cd baby one of the passions i had before i was working at cd baby i'd interned at a music licensing company in portland and i loved the idea of your music working for you and the thing that really attracted me to sync licensing is that what is needed in sync licensing is totally different than how the mainstream industry works it's all about the song and the 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 feel and what it provides to the production it has nothing to do with its release date or its popularity or anything like that so i was really into that the idea of like getting your music working for you so i was doing sync licensing in the podcast they didn't want me to keep doing the sync licensing thing because it wasn't the biggest need at the time which was absolutely the right call um and they started a marketing department and so i started doing our social media stuff because that was when you know at that time companies would still say you know there was debate whether or not companies should even engage on social media <laughs> it's just a fad uh it's a waste of time you know all that kind of stuff so i started doing our social media marketing and then um chris who's on the podcast with me his role also changed and he started writing and we started collaborating to put together the DIY musician blog so we have the DIY musician blog and the podcast and and those just really quickly continued to take off and um you know we were the only company at that time that was creating that kind of content there was some other people around doing some of it independently but as far as a company is concerned like no one else was doing it and i felt like it was just continuing the you know sort of the the spirit of how i came across cd baby in the first place because i was trying to find good reliable content of how i do this as an artist and that's how i came across cd baby so we just kept building that and you know then became director of marketing um and uh and then you know vp of marketing then svp of marketing then svp of engagement and education so really to me the as far as my career path it was boils down to a couple things it was like i want to be here and i want to this i want to use my talents to make this place a better place um it uh i i found over the years in any workplace this isn't just cd baby you have people that are like i'm here because i want to be here and this is my life and my the my passion and you have people that are like no oh, I'll, i'll do a little extra when you pay me more 
those people are always complaining about why they're not moving up and the people that want to be there and are passionate about it and want to, you know, be a part of the conversation or opportunity because they want to the, the business to succeed or they want to help the client. You know, that's really all I did was was and, you know, I thought that that there was a unique position in the marketplace where um, the the artists and what it, a lot of the content historically for artists, like, you know, for most of the time up to that point, were just books um, really were just about the business. They didn't really address the artists. They always cut out the creative part. I'll say it's like, here's how the business works. Yeah. Once you have a product and it's selling, yeah, that's great. That's how it works. But um, how do you be an artist? How do you, what's that like um, and the realities that that come along with it so nobody was really making that and so i think it really um it really turned the tide for cd baby and started an, a really big era of growth and artists really gravitating towards cd baby because i think they felt seen by us and understood and um yeah so i mean to me that's always been important part of what we do and the content we make it's like um, I say on our podcast all the time, I'm not, I'm not just some talking head that's like, oh, you know, it's so easy if you just go do this. Why don't you just get off your butt, stop watching Netflix and just go do that thing and you'll be getting a million streams a month because there's a lot of content out there that has that attitude and the idea mm -hmm. of being able to identify with an artist and know that, look, I've done, I've had songs that I thought were going to be mega hits that barely did anything. <laughs> I understand what it's like to put your heart and soul into something and then put it out to the world. It's so scary because it's like that's that it, it feels like you just birthed a child and now everyone's going to comment on whether or not they think it's any good. And you're like, that's my heart and soul you're commenting on. <laughs> and so really being able to understand that that is a whole process that artists go through that is challenging in and of itself, much less, you know, people telling us to be on TikTok five hours a day in order to you know, build an audience. I'm like, well, I got to make music at some point. I got to pay my bills at some point. There's only so much I can do. What am I really in this for? And what am I really trying to do? So I feel like that for us really sitting in the place with the artists, but trying these things ourselves, we're not, we're, we're doing ad campaigns. We're trying all these different release strategies, Chris and I, and, and some other people at CD Bay. We're doing a lot just because we're, um, we're in it and we want to see things happen. We still have the dream to, you know, that people love and enjoy our music and, and that, that we want to keep creating it. So I think that's, that big was a big part of why I think um, what we were doing was connecting with people that also helped propel my career forward. So being a CD baby, as long as you have, including also doing the podcast itself and also being an independent musician yourself can I we I love to talk about the pitfalls because I always like to because I know there's always common pitfalls that be, that independent musicians make and uh and maybe this can relate to one of your crazy stories because like that really intrigued me you were talking about insane stories at CD baby 
um, that are that that are. Some of them I can't share. That's fine. No, no, no. You don't have to share. You, them said, with you. you said this show was PG to PG thirteen before we started. Oh, so. <laughs> maybe then off off air we'll talk about those stories. I'm really intrigued by those. But can you talk about some of the common mistakes that uh, if you have like an example or two of a, a common mistake that independent musicians usually make? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean the 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 biggest one that artists just make all the time and this kind of goes back to understanding the what it's like to be an artist is that they they're always and i'm guilty of it myself scheduling an arbitrary release date before the music is done and i know they do it as sort of a goal hey that's my goal that this is out like we're recording this it's mid-september you know my goal is to have something out in november i'm in the studio now and so we're almost done so that arbitrary date in the future starts to, to, to drive the activity instead of getting the music right and finishing the product, then saying, okay, we have the final product. We need two months to put our promotion cap on and take our creative, you know, our, our recording cap off and really put together a plan and go after this. So um, they're usually, you know, that arbitrary release date in the future keeps getting closer and closer and closer and the music's not done. Instead of thinking, well, why am I going to burn this release and keep that release date? That was just an arbitrary date. Let me set an appropriate date. Artists are like always scrambling, like it's Wednesday. I need my music up by Friday for, for you know, because Friday is the release day. And thinking, why? Why are you doing that to yourself? <laughs> it happens all the time. It's like, we can do that for you. But there's so much opportunity that only exists leading up to a release both in the pre-release process and like as the music comes out. Um, one of the big ones now is that if you have your music in distribution and, and you know, the release dates at least a week out and Spotify, you know, we've already delivered it to Spotify for you. You can use their pitching tool in, and even if their editors don't check out your music, which it's a long shot that using that tool ensures that all your music gets pushed to your fans on Discover Weekly and Release Radar and things like that. So those are all the opportunities that artists are always like, I need this up by tomorrow. And Monica, why? Because we set this random release date six months ago and it's here. Like, why don't you wait and do this right um, and not put all this arbitrary pressure on yourself to get it out there and then be disappointed in the results. Um, I have that conversation all the time and it's something that has not changed uh from the day day one at working at cd baby to today uh the same thing no matter if the mediums changed and the formats and all that kind of stuff that's probably the biggest just simple mistake that can be corrected that artists make constantly i really hope that my artists are listening to this right now because <laughs> i have that conversation with them all the time is that i know a big part of it is the want something out by the end of year is like another big one as well, where they want, they feel, I can understand that, that sense of accomplishment, right? Where they worked on something for so long that they, they, by the time they're done recording, they just want it out there because they're so excited and they want to share it. And they also want to feel they've accomplished something for that year. But the worst thing you can do, and I tell them, it's like, why are you tripping at the finish line? If you just take a little bit of extra time and put you know and we can look at what the release strategy is now that everything is done 
there's so much more opportunity because like you said yeah it's a long shot for getting into a spotify editorial but why extinguish that opportunity just because you want it out sooner right you know or and there's so many other things that you can take advantage of before a release comes out that once the release is out i mean it's out now now you're scrambling at that point in time to getting as as much promotion as you possibly can because again depending upon if it's a single or an album there is a kind of a time frame for how long you can really promote something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, artists, when they finish the album, uh, especially an album, they're just so excited. They, especially if they're like, you know, just got the mastering back. They're like, I just want this to be out now. Part of it is the excitement, but also part of it is just, it's emotionally draining. Um, and I think some Sometimes I find that with myself, especially when we get to the mastering process, because I'm like, I'm just so done with this thing. <laughs> I just want it to be over. I love what we did, but I just needed to be done. I'm tired of this project constantly hanging out there. Um, so, uh, and I've, you know, because I'm in a band, I'm not a solo artist. I've had to have this conversation every release, like, um, and they're, the last album we did, which came out last fall, was the first time I stuck to my guns and said, because uh, the production process got delayed months, longer than we expected. And the, one of the guys kept saying, let's just go ahead and start a release. We need a release date. To I'm like, why? What, what does that do? We don't have the album done. I don't know if it's going to be done. So why do that to ourselves and have to backtrack? Let's just wait. It was the first time I actually held... <laughs> held to it and didn't uh, pick some arbitrary release date. And, you know, we're in the middle of working on another record right now. And there's the pressure of like, well, let's just, it'd be great if we could get it by the end of the year, because then it'd be our, you know, the 25th anniversary of the band. And I'm like, if, if we get it done, great, that's a nice goal, but I'm not going to announce any sort of release date because that's, again, what I want to do is focus on making sure we, put out the best album possible, not start making shortcuts because we feel time crunch. 100%. What I usually like to do is if an artist has a tentative date in mind, I'll reverse engineer and saying, okay, if we want to hit this date, these are things that need to be done first before we can, if we want to make sure we are hitting that date. And if we don't, that's okay too. Cause you know, the creative process takes a long time and things are going to come up. Things are, you know, chances are something is going to go wrong, like, or take a lot longer than expected. That is a natural part of the creative process. So it's great to have that. If we can, if we can shoot for that and we can end up with that date. Awesome. If not, that's okay too. But I also tell them this too, is that we're not confirming a date, meaning we're not announcing anything until we have the final masters in our hands, finals done and the final artwork and i do the end the final artwork too because i've also seen artwork that should have taken like two weeks end up taking like two months so both of those things basically literally everything that we need in in hand to release the music then we can say okay now we can actually set a date once we have those things in place yeah and and you know you bring up a good point that what i was saying i was speaking from like just my my band situation where we're doing all the promotion when i say we i really mean me because <laughs> it's all i'm the one setting i'm that guy in the band that's like the marketing guy who's gonna you know make everybody fall in line and do the things but um but yeah when you're when you're working with a label or a manager or 
or even a publicist, you're going to need even more time because you got to have all those assets finalized before they can even figure out what they have and how they can help promote it. For me, I think that was the the toughest thing when we signed to a label, you know, um, we gotten signed and, you know, uh, no music out yet. So nobody knows who we are, but you've recorded this album and you're just, you know, cause we had it wrapped up in, I think October of, uh, most of it was pretty much done in October and it wasn't going to come out until March. And so you're just dying. Like, I just want people to hear this. And you're like, when this comes out, I think it's going to do really well. And but you got to have that patience because uh, if you don't, you, you're limiting opportunity. So being on both sides of the coin, uh, what do you usually recommend for a lead time? So in this case scenario, I'll say again, final masters, final artwork in hand. Uh, what kind of lead time do you usually recommend from that point to release? Is it usually like a, and I'll say this for both single and album, because sometimes those two things can be a little bit different on lead time. Yeah. Yeah. And we actually have a tool that we made just for that very thing. Uh, it's called, we, we called it the release plan generator. It's at release.cdbaby.com. It's a completely, mm -hmm. completely free tool to use. You don't have to use CD baby for distribution to use this tool. I've seen it before. It's great. It's a great tool. And that's basically what, we, we were at getting asked this question so much that I was like, hey, Chris, we should try and put together some sort of tool that helps people understand their opportunities. So in that tool, you can put in a release date and it will populate opportunities or remove them based on the time frame you have. So, you know, for a single, like if I'm just dropping a single or, a, you know, I would usually give myself at least a month, ideally. Um, there are some exceptions to the rule. Um, for an album, I'd probably give myself at least at least two months. Three months is probably more ideal, but it all depends on what your goals are. Um, and I think that's what's important to, to figure out that before you... Um, that's why I think when you're done recording, you, you take the, the, the recording producing hat off and put the music promotion hat on and realize uh, there's a lot that you need and there's a lot you need to get to people in order for them to be able to uh, promote you in the in the event they say yes you know so like things like um, for a while uh, if you had a video and were willing to do a give a certain music website like hey I'll give you the exclusive of, with the video a week before the music comes out. Oftentimes that would improve your chances of getting press at a major outlet, but you need enough runtime for them to be able to say, yeah, that works with our schedule because they've got other editorial things they're doing. Um, and uh, then you got to have a video and, you know, but for them, they're like, oh, great. You'll send all your fans to my website to check out your song and we'll promote it. And it's a win-win for both, both people. So there's opportunities like that, that, you know, having a couple months is very helpful because you might need to make a video and it doesn't have to be this highly produced thing, but you got to have something. Um, and you might need to, you know, have new photos and things like that and just get it all together and organized. So when someone does say yes, whether it's a website to feature your music, a playlister or, or um, local media that you have what they need and you have the time to do it. Um, 
So it all depends. If you're going to traditional press, you need a lot more lead time. Um, so like if you're wanting the uh, a big newspaper or magazine to cover your release, they're usually, their editorial calendar is um, pretty much planned sometimes a couple months in advance. Yeah, depending upon what the publication is, yeah. And so then all that. those things come into play, and that's why uh, the release plan generator, it, it helps you understand, hey, if I want like the LA Times to cover my release, well, you better not be emailing them on a Wednesday, hoping they'll put it in the Friday edition. I mean, come on. Right, exactly. So that's why your goals and objectives and doing that real self-assessment of what the true opportunities are for your music um, with that release. Now, with a single, I, would, I don't, wouldn't necessarily... Um, need as much lead time because I think you're going to have uh, maybe depending on the genre, you might have less opportunity um, for coverage. Um, but also, you know, like, are is there a tour launching? Are you doing a release show? All those other things that play into it that are helpful um, to coordinate, um, you know, to really make a release have power. There's a lot to it. Like you mentioned before, is there going to be new, uh, new images that need to be, you know, you have to do another photo shoot for the, for the project. Um, what is the merch line like? Does that need to be updated? Are we doing a, are essentially a tweak of the branding? Are we doing a rebrand? Yeah. That's going to be surrounding new website, all those new website. Uh, you, you mentioned before about video. Is there going to be a music video or a performance video that's going to be associated with this single? And then what is, when's that going to essentially be released? Is there going to be an upcoming tour that, that can be surrounding this release, even if it's just a single? There are so many factors to be involved with. And sure, you can release it, you know, re just release the single and be done with it. But if you want to, to maximize as much as possible on that release, then it's, it's worth it to at least go through that thought process. And, you know, a lot of things probably won't end up panning out anyway. But why, again, why would you limit your opportunities if you waited just a little bit longer, even if it's just a couple months out? to see what it, what is possible for your single to get out there. Cause that could make a big difference between it really taking off and not. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that, that's why, you know, again, this started off the number one mistake. It's, it's a mistake that has potentially a lot of ramifications. Now you could say, Hey, I planned my release and I did all the things and I still didn't get any opportunity. It's like, well, that can happen too, but oh, yes. but but one is still an opportunity. I mean, when you when you do the things the right way, chances are something will come come through. But uh, you're not guaranteed anything. But if you don't do it, it, you're guaranteed that it won't happen. Exactly right. It's like what is it? Um, uh, Wayne Gretzky said that you you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take is is or by by quote by michael scott as well if you're a yes yes um, yes so uh it, but it's, it's totally true if you're not going to even attempt those things because you are releasing it uh too early for really to give it a chance you know you may still miss but you're guaranteed to miss if you're if you're going to release it too soon so it, it's worth it to, to really just have that plan in action to think things through see what's available to you see what all the things are going to surround it. Cause that's also the conversation to have is, is if you're especially releasing a single albums, a little bit different, but if you're releasing singles goes, okay, that's great. But then what's next, right? Because I'm, and I'm sure you've seen this so much on your end is that when artists do singles, you see these little bumps, 
right? They get, a, you know, they get a bump of interest and then it just goes back down again. And then they get, when they release another single, but it's not growing. It's just kind of like these blips. So if you're not doing other things surrounding the single, you're just going to, you're just going to have these blips and you're going to be investing so much into this music and for this promotion, but not really growing. You're not really gaining any kind of traction or going anywhere. So it's really about, well, what else should I be doing? What else can I do that's going to maximize on this release so I can grow, you know, keep that audience that I'm gravitate, you know, that I'm getting attention for this song for so that this time when the next release comes out, I already have that audience built and now I can grow upon that and, and get more audience and as well as nurturing the existing audience that I have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so I have a couple of uh, general questions for you to essentially wrap up here. So first of all, first car concert that you've ever been to? Uh, that's a tough one because uh, it honestly, it was probably something like uh, uh, Pat Boone uh, at, the, at the zoo with my parents when I was a little kid. I remember going to those concerts at the zoo all the time and I know we saw Pat Boone a couple times. I remember seeing uh, uh, the Beach Boys after a baseball game as as a kid. Um, so yeah, I've I've seen some some stuff like that way back in the day. Those are actually really good. Those are good first concerts. I'm not gonna lie. Those are really good first concerts. I probably didn't appreciate them as much as I should have at the time, but yeah. What is your go-to song that you sing in the car? Oh, um, I honestly, I don't know that I have a go-to song. Um, usually when I'm in the car, I'm listening to podcasts. <laughs> Fair. Same with me. Same with me. But, you know, my, my go-to, when I'm just like, I just want to listen to something that I know I'm going to love. Uh, one of my go-to artists, and this is, I, I always hate saying that they're, uh, one of my, or if not my favorite band, because I think it, it sends uh, people down the wrong musical path of the kind of stuff that I truly listen to all the time and like. But uh, I love Guns N' Roses. That nice. just, <laughs> Appetite for Destruction is is still, in my opinion, I think one of the best rock albums that's ever been recorded. Just the amount of energy and uh, and rock rock and roll angst that it's hard to capture that when you're making a record like it really feel raw but still have that production and that album to me is just uh the top of the top for for that so i love i love anything by by well the the original lineup <laughs> yeah <laughs> fair enough but uh anyway that's something that like if i'm like i don't know what to listen to i just need to put something on that'll make me be in a good mood. Uh, that, that one's a go-to. I love bands like Death Cab for Cutie and, and uh, you know, very stuff that's in a very different direction musically than, than Guns N' Roses, but that's probably my all-time favorite. This question is then is for the audience, both for independent musicians and also those that I would say independent musicians and as well as anyone seeking a career in the music industry on having a long-term career as you, as you've done for yourself, can you give them a, a word of advice for anybody who's looking to have a long-term relationship in the music industry? Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is I always tell artists is that 
Um, if you're really wanting a music career, you have to be prepared for that. This is going to be a long journey and it's going to have some big ups and potentially some big ups and some big downs that that's just how it, how it goes. Um, sometimes things will feel like they're connecting and really working and new opportunities happening. Doors are opening. And other times you may be feeling like, I don't know if I'll ever write a song again, <laughs> which I've been in that place many, many times. Like I feel so tapped out, not creative. I don't think I'll ever write another song. I don't, I might as well just sell my gear. Um, and that's, you know, any creative endeavor is going to have that, those feelings. Like sometimes it feels like, yes, everything's just clicking. Lots of stuff is happening. I'm getting shows and all, you know, people are liking the music, uh, to feeling like a bit lost and, uh, hopeless at times, but it's a long career. And that's, I think important because the creative process is all over the map. I think the one thing, you know, especially the entertainment world gets hyper focused on youth culture and if you know TikTok could be making that even worse um i think what gets lost in that is that man the the an artist gets better over time because they have more life experience they have more perspective they have lots of different things to draw from and i think as you go through life trying to to see that and grow, have your career grow as you grow as an artist um, and know that it's okay. Sometimes it can feel scary to feel like uh, you're going into a new album. Um, like our last album, um, you know, for us, the challenge has always been that there's the music that we did on our label days, you know, the, uh, you know, the song that's I co-wrote that's responsible for that platinum record on the wall there. Uh, and it's hard to get beyond that at times, like where the fans are just like, we just want to hear those hits over and over again, or keep writing songs like that. And like, well, that was a long time ago. And I'm a, we're different people now and we've grown and we're interested in different things now. And so going into this last record, we just made the, the thing of like, you know what, let's make, let's make the record that those fans will hate. And it wasn't like an intentional, let's just do everything the opposite of what they might want. It was just the idea of like, let's give ourselves permission to leave those fans behind. Um, not that we want to leave them behind, but the idea of that um, we need to be okay with if this new, this new record, you know, because COVID was happening when we were recording it and everything felt crazy. If this is just for us, then that's fine. There was a lot going on in our personal lives and, and a lot of that's expressed through the music and really just wanting to grow with how we were emoting through sound and lyric and all that kind of stuff. And so for us, I felt like giving ourselves that permission really gave us a record that we think is the best thing we've ever done. Um, and so I think as an artist, knowing that it's a long journey and that, um, you know, that you just have to be in it for the long haul. The other thing I'd say is also building a catalog. And that at CD Baby, there's a lot of artists that are making lots and lots and lots of money. And most of them, the thing they have in common is they've built up uh, a sizable catalog over years because it's like you build some fans with your first album. Well, the next one comes out, they're going to listen to that and you're going to gain some new fans. And then, you know, it keeps building and building. And by the time you have, you know, 10 albums, you've got 100 tracks that every time you release music, people go back and consume. 
So to me, building that catalog, because if you have a great song and all you have is one song out or two songs out, your fans can only listen to that one song so many times. They can only listen to other your other songs so many times. So when you have a catalog, your fans can be like, oh, yeah, I, I love that artist. And they get in a groove and they go listen to the, your whole catalog again. And all of that is money back to you. Um, and it gives people more ways into your music. So those two things, I think, just preparing for a long journey and like, this is this, I'm in it for the long haul. This isn't a quick way to make a buck. If it is, there's so much better ways to make money than by just releasing some music um, and and building a catalog that that over time having depths of of songs that that people want to listen to um, that fit in different playlists that fit all over the place really really helps um, propel your music career forward. I couldn't say it better than myself. So thank you so, so much, Kevin. I'll make sure yeah. that we include a uh, links in our description for both the podcast, uh, as well as the release plan generator, cause it is a fantastic tool. So yeah. thank you so, so much again for your time. And really, I had a great time chatting with you. So thank oh. you so much again. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the 8020 show. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow. If you enjoyed the episode or this podcast overall, please leave us a review or comment on our socials, which you can find us at 8020records on pretty much all platforms. You can also check us out on our website at www.8020records.com. And as always, be happy, be healthy, and be productive.